Amen. That is my favorite hymn. It's a beautiful, beautiful day of music. Revelation song is my favorite praise song. Virginia, it was lovely to hear you sing. It's been a long time. It was lovely to hear it. I know that the church was blessed. If you have your Bibles, turn in them to 2 Chronicles 26. And look with me at verse 1. Second Chronicles 26. I'm reading from the ESV translation. And all the people of Judah took Uzziah, who was 16 years old, and made him king instead of his father, Amaziah. He built Eloth and restored it to Judah after the king slept with his fathers. That is to say, his father died. The king died. Uzziah was 16 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 52 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jechaliah of Jerusalem, and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that his father Amaziah had done. He set himself to seek God in the days of Zechariah, who instructed him in the fear of God, and as long as he sought the Lord God, made him prosper." He went out and made war against the Philistines and broke through the wall of Gath and the wall of Jabna. Now, listen, every part that we're going to read between here and the verses, uh, verse 15, is going to be an expression of how Uzziah prospered. But the cause is because he did what was right and he sought the Lord. It says here, he was instructed in the fear of the Lord. And he sought the Lord. Here is a list of his prosperity. He went out and he made war against the Philistines. And broke through the wall of Gath and the wall of Jabna and the wall of Ashdod. And he built cities in the territory of Ashdod. And elsewhere amongst the Philistines. He had victory over the greatest enemy of Israel. God helped him against the Philistines and against the Arabians who lived in Gerubbel. And against the Meunites and the Ammonites paid tribute to Isaiah. And his fame spread even to the border of Egypt for he became very strong. Moreover Uzziah built towers in Jerusalem at the corner gate and at the valley gate. And at the angle and fortified them. And he built towers in the wilderness. And he cut out many cisterns. For he had large herds. Both in the Shephelah and in the plain. And he had farmers and vine dressers in the hills. And in the fertile lands. For he loved the soil. Moreover Uzziah had an army of soldiers fit for war. In divisions according to the numbers. And the muster made by Jael. The secretary of Masaiah. And the officer under the direction of Hananiah, one of the king's commanders. The whole number of the heads of father's house of mighty men of valor was 2,600. 
Under their command was an army of 307,500 who could make war with mighty power to help the king against the enemy. And Uzziah prepared for all the army shields, spears, and helmets, coats of mail, bows, and stones for slinging. In Jerusalem he made machines invented by skillful men to be on the towers and the corners to shoot arrows and great stones. And his fame spread far, for he was marvelously helped till he was strong. And then comes the most terrifying word in the Bible. It can either be the most terrifying word in the Bible or the most wonderful word in the Bible. But in this context, it is terrifying. It is the word but. Many of you are very prosperous by worldly standards. Successful in your business. Successful in your education. Successful in your friends and in your relationships. But. But when he was strong, he grew proud to his destruction. For he was unfaithful to the Lord, <clears throat> to the Lord his God, and entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. Uzziah lost sight of how he got to where he got, how he arrived at this place of prosperity and success. He looked back at all the things he did, and just like everyone else in the world who experiences success, they go back and look at it and say, look at what my hand has done. And they become proud, so proud that they begin to even dictate how worship of God will be done. But Azariah the priest went in after him with 80 priests of the Lord who were men of valor. And they withstood King Uzziah and said to him, It is not for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord, but for the priests, the sons of Aaron, who are consecrated to burn incense. Go out of the sanctuary, for you have done wrong, and it will bring you no honor from the Lord God. Then Uzziah was angry. That's what happens when men, especially successful men, are confronted with their sin. They become angry. He became angry with the priests. Leprosy broke out on his forehead in the presence of the priests. In the house of the Lord by the altar of incense. And Azariah the chief priest and all the priests looked at him. And behold he was leprous in his forehead. And they rushed him out quickly. And he himself hurried to go out because the Lord had struck him. And King Uzziah was a leper to the day of his death. And being a leper lived in a separate house. For he was excluded from the house of the Lord. And Jotham his son was over the king's household, governing the people of the land. Let's pray. Father, it is a terrifying thing 
to be under your wrath. Lord, many of us today have worshipped you because of what we seem to think we will get out of it. We have treated you as a means to an end rather than the end in itself. We have taught in our churches, preached from our pulpits, that those who serve you will prosper rather than those who serve you will find their greatest pleasure. You, O Lord, are our portion. What can be greater than that? But Lord, we still run after the things created rather than the creator who is to be praised. It is almost impossible today, Father, you know this, to draw a crowd where the only, the only subject of entertainment is you, God. You are the only thing there to be worshipped and praised. And we can scarcely draw a crowd. Today we seek after secondary, tertiary, and ultimately infinitely insignificant things compared to your glory. Father, help us in this very moment today to begin a new grasping of living before your face. In quorum Deo, for the rest of our lives. To understand what it is to know you and to know your power and to be undone before you and lifted up by your son. To know what it is to be the disciple of the Almighty. Teach us, Lord. Amen. Beginning the second part of our sermon series, our sub-sermon series. This is part of the Basic Christianity series. And it is properly basic today that we know who God is. It is the fundamental task of theology to know God. The word theology simply means study of God. Theos is the Greek word for God. Ology just means the study of. But if we are going to study God, we must go to the source. The chief question, whenever we have any discipline, is to ask, what is our chief sources? What are the chief sources by which we derive our knowledge? And God has given us two. One greater than the other, one more specific than the other, but both nonetheless infallible and inerrant. And the first one is, he has given us nature. The Bible tells us that the heavens declare the glory of God. Now understand that what the heavens declare may not be what the scientists interpret. Key word there is interpret. Because scripture warns us in Romans 1 that the truths of God may be, they have been made plain by what is created. But men by their wickedness have taken that truth and have suppressed it. They have buried it. They will not recognize it for what it is. Namely, the true revelation of God's glory. The second source is God's word. It is the specific source of who God is. 
if we are to say anything that is worthy, anything that is true, anything that is profitable about the Lord God, it must come from Him as the chief source through His revelation in nature and through His revelation in the Word. That is to say that all of our thoughts and our deepest affections about God must, I say, must be born out of a proper understanding of His Word. Men love to try and worship God and define God on their own terms. This is exactly what Uzziah did. God set a system... He had set in place the stipulations and the sanctions for worshiping him. And the only people in the temple who were permitted to enter into that tabernacle and into the temple to offer sacrifices to the Lord and to offer incense, a specific incense, mind you, to offer that to the Lord were the sons of Aaron, the Levites. And Uzziah became proud and he decided that he would worship God as he knew best. And there is in God's economy no greater sin that will cast you away from him than to try and define him and worship him all on your own. Listen to me, church. Listen to me, Christian. I'm sure your intentions were as good as King Saul when he decided to offer sacrifices to God, to try and worship God on his own terms. I'm sure your intentions were probably as good as Cain when he offered a lesser sacrifice to God. But God will tell you how to worship him. You will listen and he will speak or you will not have the Lord. The Lord will be worshipped on his own terms. And if we are to know God, then we must know him on his own terms. And we, not him, we must align ourselves to his will. It is not God who has gone astray. Don't ask where is God. God is high and lifted up. He sits on a throne and he reigns over heaven, over all things. God is not gone. You are the rebel. So knowing God is essential to all things Christian. It is the greatest need for the church today to know who God is on God's terms. J.I. Packer, Christian theologian, says this. He says, we are cruel to ourselves if we try to live in this world without knowing about the God whose world it is and who runs it. Why fight? Why resist? No other reason than your sinful pride to fight and resist against the God who created and sustains this universe. You cannot mock the creator and have success in any real way in this life. 
Packer goes on, he says, disregard the study of God and you sentence yourself to stumble and blunder through life blindfolded with no sense of direction and no understanding of what surrounds you. One thing that you'll notice when you counsel other Christians is the messiness of sin. It is so messy. It is so hard to figure out the solution because you have gone away from God. God is the author and creator and sustainer of the word cosmos, which means order in nature. And what happens when you disobey God is you create chaos. And it's messy. And the solutions are never easy. We end up having to do things that seem and feel even worse than the things before to try and get out of the mess. And in that, God is glorified because God is the Lord and He will be obeyed. Packer continues, he says, This is the way that one wastes his life and loses his soul. You want to see a wasted life? Parents, you want to see a wasted life? If your child rejects Christ as Savior and hates his church, it's a wasted life. It doesn't matter if the girl cures cancer. Her life before the Lord is a waste. That is the lesson we just learned from Uzziah. He did many things, delivered the people of Israel from the suffering of the Philistines. He was a strong and mighty man, but in the end, he cursed God. It is a wasted life. Stop pushing your children to be better and more successful in college as the chief end. Push them to love Christ and his church. And that is a profitable life. I'm not saying don't encourage your children to be successful. But what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world but loses his own soul? And what Packer is telling you here is that in the rejection of God, you lose not only your life, wasting your life, but you lose your very soul. God has not put you here to be your own Lord. He has put you here to worship Him as Lord. Charles Spurgeon said this, he said, The most excellent study for expanding the soul is the science of Christ and Him crucified and the knowledge of the Godhead and the glorious Trinity. There is in Christ a balm for every wound. In musing on the Father, there is a quietus for every grief. And in influence of the Holy Spirit, there is a balsam for every sore. Do you want to lose your sorrow, said Spurgeon? Do you wish to drown all of your cares and anxieties? Then plunge yourself in the Godhead's deepest sea. Be lost in his immensity and you will come up as from a couch of rest, refreshed and invigorated. 
you ought to desire Sunday worship. It ought to be your portion for the week. Yes, it is your duty. Yes, you should be disciplined in your attendance. But it is not discipline and duty that we are pushing for. It is desire. Every married couple who's been married for any time knows that you have to work at romance. You cannot sit on your can and grow lazy, but you have to make a disciplined duty. Make it your discipline and your duty to strive for greater love with your spouse. And the only way to do that is to have zeal. Is to have fervor for your other. How then can you have fervor for God when you don't spend time with Him or His people? Enjoy the worship of the Lord today. I am going to preach the best thing in life. I am going to preach the glory of God. Enjoy it. Soak it up. Even in the fear of him who is almighty, know your place and know that he is God. Spurgeon says that there is nothing which can so comfort the soul or calm the swelling billows of sorrow and grief. So speak peace to the winds of trial as a devout musing upon the subject of God. These great men believed as the Bible taught. That the chief goal of human life is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Every other life pursuit is idolatry. If you're running after anything other than God, you are running after an idol. My sermon proposition is this today. It's what I want to argue for. Because God is the one and only Holy Lord, we must give every part of our life to being His holy disciples. This is what we are driving for today. Because God is the one and only Holy Lord, we must give every part of our life to being His holy disciples. God is the one and only Holy Lord. But R.C. Sproul reminds us the difficulty of trying to define a word like holy. He reminds us that the word holy is not simply a word that can be defined by a dictionary. He says, in fact, there is no dictionary in the world that can define holiness properly. He says, the problem we face when we try to define the word holy is that it is a word that is foreign to all languages. No dictionary is adequate to the task. And I hope... 
you're making your predictions as to why that must be the case. It is because there is only one who is holy, and that is God. Holy means something. The word holy means properly otherness. God is other than man. We looked last week at the various attempts to try and say and know who God is. And there are attempts to say we know God if we know ourselves. False. I've heard atheists say, one atheist philosopher said, had men been made cows, the deities would have been cows. Because we have created God in our own image. And in a sense, in Greece, he is right. In many pagan places, man, though the created thing, is the deity. But this is why God will not be worshipped with graven images. Because the moment you begin to engrave anything of God, you have depicted him falsely. Because he is other. He is not a created thing. He is other. You say, what's so bad about having a statue of Jesus in my home? It is not, besides the fact that he looks like Kenny Loggins, it is not God. You feel bad every time you throw your, you would never take your your coat off and throw it on the statue of Jesus to hold your coat, would you? You feel guilty about it. But it's not God. You will worship God truly, and you will worship true God only. Have no other gods before me, and don't worship me with graven images. God is the other He is also the Lord, and He is in control. He is transcendent deity. He is imminent authority. These two words some theologians refer to as God's transcendence and His immanence. That God is both other, He is above, He is away from, He is beyond And God is here or near to and involved in and with his creation. So that God is transcendent, other, deity, and he is the Lord, control, authority over all things. Holy otherness, deity. Excuse me. R.C. Sproul says this, he says, The primary meaning of holy is separate, but there's more to this word. It speaks of God's transcendence, his aboveness, his beyondness. There is nothing in nature that can do justice to the glory of God, but all nature simply declares his glory. He is the Lord and in control. John Frame says the relation between control and authority is between might and right. 
So not only is God transcendent, but He is in control of all things. It means that God has the power to direct the whole course of nature and history as He pleases. That is the greatest obstacle for Christians to understand. It is that God does as He pleases. Frame goes on. He says, from our standpoint as creatures, God's authority is his right to command, his right to tell us what we ought to do. When he issues commands, he is supremely right in doing so. Thus his word creates for us an obligation to obey. My brother used to say something to me. And it was kind of true. He used to say, Andrew, Jeff, you've probably heard him say this before. Yours is not to reason why. Yours is but to do or die. And then he would punch his palm. And I knew what that meant. It meant if you don't get up at 2.30 in the morning and make me a sandwich, I'm going to punch you. My brother and I have a great relationship, by the way. That's what happens when you beat the snot out of each other. <laughs> By the way, that was an unfair fight. He was so much bigger than me, so much older than me. David, if you're listening, you know that every time we fought, I gave you the black eye. Anyway, back to the Lord as I glorify myself. Isaiah teaches us a valuable lesson. Go to Isaiah 6 very quickly, very quickly. This story teaches us what it is to see God as both transcendent and imminent, as the Holy Lord. The next time someone asks you who or what is God, your answer should be, He is Holy Lord. He is the one and only Holy Lord. Listen to me, that doctrinal point is not insignificant for your life. The point of this morning's sermon is that because God is Holy Lord, we are to obey as His holy disciples. That doctrinal truth that God is Holy Lord dictates everything about our lives. Isaiah 6, 1 through 5. It teaches us that the knowledge of God, what the knowledge of God is and the very wisdom that it produces. Look at the beginning of the passage. In the year that King Uzziah died. What did King Uzziah die from? Leprosy. Why did he get leprosy? Because he tried to make himself Lord. Because he made himself God. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood seraphim. Each had six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. 
And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. It's very popular today to say that God is love. But the most privileged beings in creation, the seraphim who encircle his very throne and are in the temple of the Lord, they do not say to him, love, love, love. They do not declare mercy, mercy, mercy. They do not declare knowledge, knowledge, knowledge. They declare holy, holy, holy. What does this passage teach us? The first thing it teaches is that kings will die and nations will fall, but God reigns forever and ever. Uzziah was the king of Israel. He died, but God reigns. Presidents are going to come and go. They're going to come every eight years, but our God reigns. Stop hitching your wagon to the next political candidate to be the Lord of your problems. He or she will never be the Lord. They are not holy, holy, holy. And so while kingdoms will come and go, and yes, even America will find its own end. But our God reigns. It teaches that the essential quality of God is His holiness, His otherness, His deity. Why do the seraphim have to cover his, their eyes? These are not sinful creatures, but they are creatures. They were not, and God spoke, and they were. He is that holy that they cannot even, even in their purity, look upon him. And this is why we have to be so careful that we don't make the chief word of holiness purity. It is not moral purity that is the chief part or chief word in the definition of God. It is his otherness. These are not sinful creatures. But they must cover their eyes from his glory. They must cover their feet. When Moses approached the burning bush, he was told to take off his sandals, for he was walking on holy ground. You say, well, wouldn't Moses' feet still be profane? Yes, but the lesson is, you and the ground have something in common. They are both made by me. And then he says, who shall I say sent you? And what is God's name? It is not love. It is I am who I am. I will define myself. Stop cheapening God by defining him rather than letting him define himself. Finally, 
we learn that the Lord is not simply one Lord amongst all other Lords. He is the Lord of hosts. The word host refers to heavenly or supernatural uh, creations. The Bible tells us that there are angels, there are fallen angels, demons. There is God, the triunity. And he is the Lord of all of them. If this is your first time in a Christian church, there may be someone here today who has never heard this. Let me explain this to you. God and the devil are not equal. The end is not in doubt. Because God is the holy, holy, holy Lord of hosts. Even the host bowed down to him. Then the Bible says, And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. You want to know why the church is dying today? Because God's voice isn't speaking in the temple. When God's voice speaks in the temple, the thresholds will shake. You ought to be afraid of the Lord Almighty. The reason why we're not afraid of the Lord Almighty is because we have preached a false God. A God who is nothing greater than a genie. Who is here to grant you each and every wish. But that is not the God of the Bible. When he speaks, the foundations will shake. We will declare in the presence of God. Woe, for I am undone. The greatest sermon ever preached on American soil was Jonathan Edwards' sermon, Sinners in the Hand of an Angry God. And as he preached, God in his wrath, yes, I say wrath. Today we talk about, are you one of those, people ask me, are you one of those fire and brimstone preachers? And I know what they mean because I've driven through East Tennessee before and I know what it is to hear the AM radio station. But I'll tell you this, while I'm not a fire and brimstone preacher, because fire and brimstone is not the point of every page, let me tell you, there is still fire and brimstone. Some of you have put on safety masks to guard yourself from the stench of the rotting flesh of hell. But hell is real. And when Edwards was preaching that sermon, people were coming up to the stage in the middle of the sermon and begging him to stop preaching. Sometimes I consider it a privilege when you walk out in the middle of a sermon. I had a woman do that one day. I knew this woman very well. And I was preaching a sermon. And I know this woman. We've had many, many conversations. It wasn't in this church. It was in a funeral home. And she got up and she walked out. She wasn't walking out because she hated me. She was walking out because it is a terrifying thing to stand in the presence of God. 
The word of God is a terrifying thing. The foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke, and Isaiah said, Woe is me, I am lost, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. John Calvin said, When holy men were struck and overwhelmed whenever they beheld the presence of God, and men are never duly touched and impressed with a conviction of their insignificance until they have contrasted themselves with the majesty of God. This is what God did to Uzziah. He reminded Uzziah that he was just a man. He reminded Uzziah that at any moment, the same thing he needs to remind all of us of is that at any moment he can take from you your very life. All of the things you have, even the brain power that got you the things you have, ultimately came from God Almighty. To stand in the presence of God is a most terrifying thing. Michael Horton said this. He said, God's majesty is not benign, but a direct beatific vision of God in his glory is more likely a glimpse of hell rather than of heaven, of judgment rather than of grace. Hell, listen, even hell declares the glory of God. Do you think fire is not God's creation? Do you think darkness is not God's creation? Do you think there is anything or any place in all of the universe and in all of the realities that God does not get to say, I own that? If you don't know that, you don't know God. In this passage, we see a relationship. A relationship between knowledge and wisdom. That when God reveals His holiness, we recognize our sinfulness. Why aren't people coming to Christ today? Because preachers aren't preaching the glory of God. When God is revealed to us and all help aids are removed, it reveals that He is holy Lord and it receives, it reveals to us our need for Him to lay the coals of atonement on our unclean lips. Men don't cry out to Jesus today because they don't know the terror of a holy Lord. We will never, dare I say we can never, know or give appreciation to Jesus as Savior until we grasp just whom and what he has saved us from. You will never appreciate Jesus as your Savior until you have stared the holiness of God right in the face. 
People get bogged down in the trees of the book of Revelation and they wonder if the locusts will be real literal locusts or whether they're helicopters. Listen to me. Let me tell you what the point of Revelation is. There are seven seals, seven trumpets, and seven bowls, and they are all God's wrath poured out upon the earth. Why? Because of the wickedness of men. And when Jesus returns, they don't start to celebrate in the streets. They hide in the hills and the mountains and beg for rocks to crush them so that they might die rather than face the glory of God. Please hear me this morning. God is most holy. You are a person with unclean lips. You ought to be terrified in his presence. Well, so what? The big question that we all ask when we come to church today is, well, how's this going to make my life better? Let me, let me just answer this for you, and you can, you can disagree with me. You would be wrong, but you can disagree with me. The question you don't ask when you go to church is, how will my life be better? That is not the point of church. And if you have a pastor friend, or you have the ability to, uh, I don't know, if you have like a tweet anything Tuesday to Joel Osteen, tweet it and make sure you quote me. Make sure. Give him my address. I think I could say something. Um, it's, not to, it's not how this is going to make you better. It's not the point. A lot of things will make you better. Finally taking your health seriously will make you better. Putting, turning Netflix off and opening up a book and studying for final exams will make you a better person. Probably. Taking your money and giving it to charity will make you better. Learning how to control your tongue, which the Bible says no man can do that is apart from the Holy Spirit will make you better, but that's not why we come to church. We come to church to stare the glory of God in his eyes so that we might fall to our faces and declare our need for his atonement. So what? How will this make my life better, says the average Christian churchgoer today. And he looks just like that. No, today he looks like somebody who owns a food truck. Um, you know what I'm talking about if you've been to those food trucks. R.C. Sproul says this, he says, How we understand the person and the character of God the Father affects every aspect of our lives. It affects far more than what we normally call the religious aspects of our lives. Whenever I'm called to do a funeral and I don't know the person, the first thing that people tell me is, oh, very religious. So what? So are Muslims. So are Buddhists. So are Japanese Shintos. Shin. 
tiptoes. So what? So is your uncle who smokes a lot of weed and thinks that he's deep and philosophical. He's very religious. What does that have to do with whether or not a person is saved and their sins atoned for? God gives us so much more than just that we are religious. If God is the creator of the entire universe, which we learned he is, then it must follow that he is the Lord of the whole universe, which we learned he is. No part of this world is outside of his lordship. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny and not one of them falls to the ground without your heavenly father, apart from your heavenly father. The very numbers of your head, uh, hairs of your head are numbered on your, uh, by your Lord. Now some of you he doesn't have a hard job to do, but for those of you, I'm looking at you Italians, for those of you who have hair, the Lord knows every one of them. Sproul says, that means that no part of my life is outside of his lordship. Oh, if you can grasp anything today, grasp this. Your schedule, your job, your health, your marriage, your children, your finances, none of it, none of it. Do you get to say, that belongs entirely to me? It belongs to the Lord. Not even your Facebook posts belong to you. They belong. What? I hear laughter. There's a reason why I don't have them. Because I say a lot of dumb things. I say a lot of dumb things. But guess what? My things aren't published, and yours are. <laughs> that's, one of the, that's one of the big heartbreaks of mine, is that when I talk with Christians, they tell me they know their Christian brothers and sisters. They go home, and they find out that there's a Facebook person who has the same name and looks the same, but it's completely different than their brother and sister in church. It's one of the hardest realities for me as a pastor that, that I am brought up, people bring up to me, because it's public, but that our people, God's people, who claim to be Christian, are showing a completely different life on Facebook, on Instagram, on Tumblr, on whatever ever it is. Do you understand that God is Lord? He gets to dictate your thoughts. He gets to tell you, don't think that, think this. And as much as you want to covet, as much as you want to lust, as much as you want to hate, as much as you want to hold that grudge. Oh God, I know people who hold grudges and they will not let it go. Because they think that they are the God of their own thoughts and heart. But they are not. Grasp today that God is the Lord. And if you stand in disobedience to him, you stand under his wrath. 
How will my life be better? Paul tells us in Romans 12 how our life will be better. Paul has been telling the Romans his theology of who God is and what he's done in Christ. And then he gets to the final part of his letter which takes on the practical application. It is the, it is the question that we're all asking right now. So what? Now what do I do? How will I today go home and make my marriage better? How will I repair that relationship with my daughter? How will I repair that relationship with my child, my son, my, my son who is addicted to drugs? That's what we're asking. And the Bible has an answer. Paul says, in light of all of this that we know about God, he says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God. The mercies of God are God's knowledge and what God has done on Calvary. To present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Christian, Becoming a Christian is not the way to have your best life now. It is the way to share in the sufferings of Christ. Paul says that if you want to be a Christian, in light of this, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Holy. What's the definition of holy? God-like. And acceptable to who? God, not your parents, not the police, not your professor or your spouse. Be acceptable to God. Which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. The push here is God is holy and because God is holy, Lord, be his holy disciples. How will your life be better? To accept this truth is to accept that God will be holy. And to accept that God is holy, you will be humbled. To accept that God is holy is to accept that God is, as Lord, that God will reign. And that God does reign in your life. That he is the king. And by that you will worship. Paul says you will worship in light of his mercies. And what is that worship? He says this is your spiritual worship. What is? What is my spiritual worship? That I come to church and run the aisles? No. Your spiritual worship is that you present your life as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. How will your life be better? God will be holy, God will reign, and God will be Lord. If God is your Lord, you will be his disciple.